You're listening to Think Sustainability, the podcast where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Lawrence Bull. Aboriginal people should be aware that this episode contains names of deceased people. Can you tell me what you remember of the stories that your father told you growing up? He's so hilarious. He used to tell us crazy stories like one of my aunties apparently was so black that she scrubbed herself to death in the bath trying to get rid of the black and we were just like, oh, my God. An uncle that had long toenails that stabbed him in the chest and his feet are still in the museum, which is not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. It's not true at all. (laughs) When you read a lot of the early European notes, they talk about how funny Aboriginal people are and how... They're like the masters of mimicry and taking (laughs) off all of the, you know, Europeans that were all very serious and all very stomping around like, you know, the whole world is important and everything. And and Dad's like that. He's quite sentimental. He's kept a lot of wonderful things. The packet of photos is what I always remember. You know, the old Kodak paper packets and the Ilford photograph boxes and stuff. So my father would often bring out photos of all of our Aboriginal family and all these people that we'd hear all these stories about. And it all seemed like worlds away. Dad would tell us the stories and what they were doing and it was the same stories but every time you heard it you got a better version or you understood it better. But I'd hear all these stories and I saw photos of my great-grandfather Tom with his boomerangs and showing people how to throw them. I've always seen this one photo of my great-grandfather Tom the one from the Hub Bridge. He's dressed up very nicely, very fancy, and he's there with his daughter. And he's holding what looks like a box brownie or something. I think it might be a ward or something. I don't know what it is. But Dad said this is just after he did a corroboree for the opening of the Harbour Bridge. And, um, oh, you know, he was really ticked off on this day because they were supposed to be the first guys to walk out and somebody got in front of them and they were really annoyed about it. You know, and that we'd hear that story at least once a year, if not more often. What did you think about this story? He liked to pull your leg. You never quite knew what was real and what wasn't. <laughs> he never made it a joke and never insinuated that it was a joke, but I'd never seen any archival evidence or never seen any photos yeah. or anything, and I was really sceptical. Shannon's dad's story was hard to believe. In 1932, the year the photo was taken, Aboriginal people had to get permission just to walk off the land they were interned on, the missions. They weren't even allowed citizenship. And yet, somehow they'd been given the honour of crossing what was at the time widely regarded as Australia's newest and most prestigious landmark. The New South Wales government had paid the equivalent of $1.5 billion in today's money to build this bridge. Its opening ceremony was the event of the decade – There were arguments over who should cut the ribbon, the Premier or a member of the royal family. In a bizarre side note, the man who actually ended up cutting the ribbon was a rogue monarchist on horseback who charged at the ribbon with a sword before the Premier got the chance. (laughs) Anyway, it seemed very unlikely the government would allow a group of Aboriginal men to be the first to cross. And even if they had been, Shannon thought there's no way they'd let her great-grandfather in the ceremony, because he wasn't just any Aboriginal man. He was one of the first activists for Aboriginal civil rights. And that's nearly 30 years before Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., all of that, before it hit the headlines anyway. At the time, education on the missions only went to seven or eight years old because it was believed we couldn't learn beyond that age. That was all that we had the capacity for. 
if your kids were sick and they were taken to hospital, you weren't allowed to go with them because of segregation. And most times you didn't get your child back. If you complained about any of the conditions, you lost your children or you went on bread and water rations. It was brutal, like really brutal. So he was a treasurer for the Aborigines Progressive Association and he'd been a soapboxer down in the domain and he'd been preaching and doing all sorts of stuff for many, many years, just asking for equal rights. But Tom's big day came in 1938. On the 26th of January in that year was the 150th anniversary. It was a sesquicentenary of the arrival of Europeans and they were having a big float and parade down through the city and everything and deliberately excluded the local people like Tom because they didn't want to celebrate. They wanted to make known their plight and what was going on in the missions and what was happening for these people. And so they weren't included in the parade. They brought in people from out in the west of New South Wales, kept them in the stables at Randwick and made them pretend to be the scared natives, you know, Mm. kneeling down and bowing in front of Cook and all this business. I've seen that video. Yeah, they reenacted it. Yes. Okay. It's heartbreaking and it's just, yeah. The natives are terrified by the approach of the white men who have sailed down from Captain Cook's Botany Bay to find a safer harbour in Sydney Cove. Captain Phillips' first thought is to befriend the natives. He moves forward towards the terrified chieftain. The 25 Aboriginal men there that day might not have had much trouble acting terrified. They'd been taken from their mission by force and weren't told they'd be performing the reenactment. He offers them gifts and they become his friends. When they tried to refuse, they were told their families back home would be starved if they didn't follow orders. Then Australia turns its eyes away from the waterfront to Sydney streets, the marching pageant of a nation's history. So Tom and the Aboriginal people were, I can't say given permission, but they were given directions. You can come and watch the parade. You have to sit here, like at the town hall steps. And then the Aboriginal group of people, there was 100 people or so, that wanted to get into the town hall to have their conference about this issue. They had like 2,000 signatures. They'd walked everywhere to kind of try and get signatures and they weren't allowed in town hall and then they were given access to Australia Hall. But they weren't allowed in the front door, so the Aboriginal people had to come up the back steps, which were like fire egress steps. And they're not to code. <laughs> they're dangerous, really dangerous, like the doors open out onto the step, not even a landing. So they had to sneak up the back way. They held their conference. Tom spoke that day, as well as a lot of the other people like Jack Patton, Doug Nichols and all of those. They were younger than him. He helped them to understand what you say, what you do, how you grab people's attention. His speech was around the three enemies of Aboriginal people. The Aborigines have three enemies. The first is the Aborigines Protection Board, which has meted out the most callous treatment to our people and has forced us to do as the white man wishes. The second enemy It's the white missionary who preaches to our people. Some of these are disgraceful. The third enemy is liquor. White men brought liquor for us and it has helped to destroy our people. We should stand shoulder to shoulder to destroy these three enemies. They went down to La Perouse and set a wreath off out into the water. They did get to have a meeting with the Prime Minister at the time and they said, no, sorry, you're under the jurisdiction of the king, can't do anything about this. But the churches in the area, they said, we'll make the Sunday before 
the 26th of January, a day of mourning for Aboriginal people in acknowledgement of what's happening. And so that happened until about 1955. And then they said, let's make it like the direct opposite, put it in July. And as it evolved, it said, we'll make it actually about celebrating all things Aboriginal, not just about our mourning, but about our culture, our dances, language, everything. And that became what we now know as NADOC. Mm -hmm. But it's a big aspect of the black rights movement in the world and Indigenous rights and activism around the world, but nobody ever knows about it. No one knows who they are. No one knows it happened right here in Sydney. No one knows that it's from one of the oldest continuous cultures in the world. Like Australia is so incredibly blind, deliberately blind, Mm. to this unbelievable cultural knowledge, stories, ways of being, connection to country that's right under their noses. And how did you learn about all those events? Through my father. I didn't understand the magnitude of what had happened. Like I remember my father telling me all these stories and it doesn't click how big something is. How could it? How could it? By the time I was like 18, I was like, right, okay, this is where we're at. I did an Indigenous Studies course through Sydney Uni and it was quite extraordinary (laughs) There was people there who knew who we were and they knew my family. We were in books and, <laughs> and I was like, wow, what's this? You know, because she looked straight at me. She goes, who are you? Who's your mom? And I'm like, really? Because I'd been surrounded by non-Indigenous people all my life and they would look at me and go, what? I thought you were Swedish. Shannon went on to become a Dharawal knowledge keeper and a researcher of her people's history. And there was one piece of her family history that she couldn't get out of her mind. The photo of her grandfather still bristling about someone jumping in front of him and stealing the honour of first to cross the Harbour Bridge in the opening ceremony. I thought, why have I never seen this? Why have I never seen any evidence of it? I just, I really found that quite perplexing. When the internet was really happening, I do remember, especially through doing my PhD um, with UTS, knowing that things had been digitised and catalogues were now online and you didn't have to sit in a basement somewhere in a spot that you'd booked in six months before to try and find things. I found things that I never thought I'd find and the most obscure little things hidden away in places. And so I just started Googling Tom Foster Aboriginal. Tom Foster, Tommy Foster, Sir Tommy Foster because they called him Sir. (laughs) every day just to see what I could find. I searched and searched and searched and I tried every single keyword that you could think of and and nothing ever came back about it. She couldn't find anything about her grandfather crossing the Harbour Bridge. But what she did find were stories about her family history that her father had never told her. Things that nobody had ever told him. Things that had been intentionally kept from him his whole life. If you just put into your Google search, 1937 the Conference for the Welfare of Aborigines. It's a PDF, it's free, you can just download it. It is hair-raising. It leaves apartheid in South Africa for dead. Like, literally, they got ideas off us. This is a core sort of part of my father's upbringing, this whole situation. We grew up in an incredibly white area, just south of Bankstown. My dad was around a lot because he'd usually work night shift or afternoon shift. And I remember one day we were down in the back paddock, it was a sports carnival, he was showing us these little things you can pick out of the grass and eat. And I had no idea that that was different, that other people didn't do that. <laughs> Not a clue. <laughs> he told us brilliant stories and I knew how to get oysters off the rocks. I can't even remember <laughs> when I first learned. I was that young. Like, it's just always been a thing we've done. And we'd get jars of oysters and make oyster sandwiches and stuff. 
I remember my father coming home really upset from work being called terrible names. He was a welder, so he'd have like black dust and stuff on his skin. And I'd heard that people had called him, you know, names around being a black fella or, you know, all sorts of derogatory things. And I'd be like, why doesn't he just have a shower and wash it off? Like, (laughs) not thinking about what that meant. My father is very dark, undeniably Aboriginal, and my mother is incredibly like translucent white skin and flaming red hair, (laughs) Irish descendant. I probably look the most like my mother's side, the white side. My sister and my brother would get really racist remarks and things said to them. But I would be told I wasn't a real one, so it didn't count. Like, <laughs> but that is a racist weird. remark. It is. Oh, it? Yeah. 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 So it's a different experience of racism. It is. It's a, it's a really, really odd thing to not look the way you feel. Mm. It's a really odd thing. You know, people would talk around me like as if I was just another white person. So I would hear the most horrific stuff. And, you know, how do you, I don't know, how do you deal with that? What do you do about that? How did you deal with yeah. that? Well, You know, when you're young, it's a sense of shame and there's always a sense of embarrassment and, like, just be quiet, put your head down, don't say anything. You're sort of, you're unscathed in a way, like when you're really little, but then then you start to say, wait a minute, (laughs) there's a huge part of me that the people around me are ignoring and and don't know about. And so I started to speak up. And if I'd speak up, they would be like, oh, you're not Aboriginal. Aboriginal people are only in Alice Springs. And it just... You know, it was a really hard time to grow up. It was called the silent apartheid and boy, oh boy, was it silent because I didn't learn anything at school. There was no acknowledgement. Everyone knew we were Aboriginal, but the teachers, class, there was nothing taught, no acknowledgement at all. What Shannon and her family didn't know was that her life had been deliberately engineered this way, almost to the smallest detail. The fact that she had white skin, that she lived in a community that didn't acknowledge her, that she was accepted as white when her siblings weren't. It was all on purpose. More than that, it was official government policy. All recorded in that document from 1937 at the Conference for Aboriginal Welfare. Yeah, Dad, I've always known I was durable. That's what he's always known. But it never occurred to me that that was different or special to anybody else. And I just thought that people knew that we were here, but they just didn't care. You know, it never occurred to me that people had actually created a deliberate narrative that says all Sydney people are gone. I suppose it's a convenient narrative for a lot of yeah. powerful people, isn't yeah. it, to, that to we're say. Not here. Yeah. It's much easier for us to be gone than mm. to still be here. We call ourselves the Dubiata Order, which is the hidden ones, because for years people didn't even know about us. Like we're right under their noses, but researchers, everybody would just go straight to the land council. Land council's never going to admit that there's traditional owners here because they represent the government and the government does not want that. So they're populated by people from other places. There's no way you're going to find a traditional owner through a land council, very rarely. And so you'd read a whole book about the Georges River and no mention. The people who lived there. Wow. You know, it's bizarre. It's mm. bizarre. And you're just erased constantly. Mm. That 1937 document that I mentioned, the Conference for the Welfare of Aborigines, it was the 12 ministers 
for the protection of Aborigines. Basically, Northern Territory guys said, look, if we are too good to these Aboriginal people, they're going to outnumber us. We can't have that. But we can't be too bad to them either because they're a rarity and the scientific community around the world's watching. So we can't just wipe them out. So basically we need to assimilate them by all means possible. And the Commonwealth government said, we'll leave it up to the states how you choose to do that. Especially the half-castes, what they called half-castes. So somebody who had a black parent and a white parent. And that was my dad. And so at the time, all the authorities were going through La Perouse and all the missions, taking all the half-caste kids, and that was what we know now as the stolen generations, and it went on for decades. So to take the kids, pop them in with a white family, easy peasy, they, they can be assimilated easily because they're not too dark. They talk about half-caste quadroons and all this. It's just horrible stuff. Some of the tactics they talk about, what they did to expire a young woman's fertility. Anyway, so there's some really... Genocide. Yeah. Oh, some horrific tactics. And so one of them was they were living in literally a corrugated iron shack on the mission with no electricity, no running water and common kitchen and bathrooms and people were allocated housing commission houses. Housing commission houses, oh, my goodness. Running water, three-bedroom house, kitchen, toilets, the whole thing. It was really, really... A great offer. It seemed to be anyway, right? <laughs> My father's parents were offered a house in Nawi, which was a very white, really nice suburb. He had all of the access to white education, jobs, all the rest of it. They had to renounce leaving the mission. They had to say, we'll never speak language again, we'll never sing, dance, talk. Although my grandfather did go on to still do that. What I found out during my PhD research was that part of this assimilation process was called either the checkerboard technique or the salt and pepper policy. So you take a family with one white parent and you dump them in the middle of a white suburb. And so disconnected from the language, culture, community, they have no choice but to assimilate into the white community. And my father experienced the most horrific racism, like his entire life. And my father met my mother, who was a local girl, they say it in no uncertain terms, exact words, breed out the black mm. in that document. And so they had bred out the black, so I look the way I do. To get native title or land rights now, you have to show it an unbroken connection to the land. Mm. But what was the first thing mm. the Europeans yeah. did? Let's push every bloody <laughs> body off. Mm. Like, it's nuts. It's like it's this weird alter universe that has laid down all of this disruption and stuff. And now today we're being punished for it. Mm. We've got to piece together things that my dad's learnt stuff from me now, you know, 50 years later mm. um, through my PhD. It took him a while to digest because he'd always thought that just getting a housing commission house in Nawi was just what happened. It was just happenstance. It was luck. And I had to sit him down and explain that was deliberate deliberate like there was no accident in how that happened and we've even mapped out where all my aunties and uncles what we call the dubiata aura the hidden ones where they lived you know whether it was Panani and Nawi like all these very white suburbs just dumped in the middle but then there's this beautiful family in La Perouse still and my aunties down there and they're fabulous and we sit with them and they just talk about all the stories of La of living with my great-grandmother and and all of my aunties uncles all the cousins all the stories of everything all the language it's phenomenal and I look over at my dad and he's got tears in his eyes and he just says to me I missed out on a lot not living down here didn't I and I was like yes you did dad like you really did. And it took him a long time to really process that and really understand that that was deliberate. That was not an accident. 
that was deliberate. And that's, you know, for better or for worse, here we are all are now. Mm. <laughs> Even now to this day, people will say that we're extinct and we don't exist anymore. But that's been proven wrong through my PhD research. We found a whole lot of archival evidence of my great-great-grandmother, Kate Sims, in the middle of Sydney during the 1800s, talking about being Dharawal and being a translator between the Aboriginal and the white communities. And we're now registered as Aboriginal owners slash traditional custodians across the Sydney Basin. On the 80th anniversary of that first day of mourning, Shannon was preparing for a special event. I was going into Australia Hall to deliver the speech that Tom had delivered on that day 80 years earlier in the same spot that he stood and everything, which was pretty special. It was 26th of Jan, so I was like a bit numb. My dad's always said, this is survival day because we survived, we've made it. (laughs) It was that morning. I was just going through Facebook and it was from Fairfax. It was a photograph from their archives. I could just see it was Aboriginal men in like a parade or something and it said opening of the Harbour Bridge. No way. Blew it up and there he was, clear as a bell, right there. And they have their Harbour Bridge boomerangs aloft and, and they were blowing the gun leaves. I went, oh my God, there you are, there you are. It was like I've, I'd been looking for him for years, you know what I mean? <laughs> and in the front, sure enough, is a white guy all dressed up. And it turns out that he's actually the Minister for the Protection of Aborigines. In the speech Tom gave on the day of mourning, the Aborigines Protection Board was the first in his list of the three enemies of Aboriginal people, because in his words, they meted out the most callous treatment to his people. They had fought tooth and nail to get that corroboree happening. They did it for two days. They put on events, dances, song, everything, you name it. And then this J.R. Milne of the Aborigines Protection Board, Aborigines is not my word, that's their Hmm. word of the time, had stepped in and said, these are my Aborigines, I organised this and I'll be taking over from here. The fact that it was this man, J.R. Milne, was particularly offensive. This was the same man who, six years later, would force the 25 Aboriginal men from Western New South Wales to play Darawal natives cowering in front of Captain Phillip. Milne kept the men in the yard at Redfern Police Station so that Tom and other members of the Aborigines Progressive Association couldn't help them. It it wasn't just any person, but from the Aborigines Protection Board, which was a massive insult. The direct oppressor. (laughs) Yes. A few years later, this same board would sit down in Canberra with all the other protections boards from the other states and territories and orchestrate Shannon's future. No language, no culture... No dancing on your own terms. Just move off your land and out into the suburbs and forget. They were rightfully cranky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really upset about this place. Your great-grandfather, Tom, mm. how was it that he came to be in this group of men that were to cross the Harbour Bridge? He organised it. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. He was a mover and shaker. He didn't sit still. So he organised the Sydney contingency of the 1937 Day of mourning, he organised the corroboree for the opening of the Harbour Bridge. He just organised so much. He was into everything. And he was, you know, Sir Tommy Foster. After finding the photo, Shannon went to Australia Hall and delivered Tom's speech from 80 years before. It was such an unbelievable 
act of courage and will and, you know, selflessness on behalf of communities all over Australia over 80 years later mm. and we're still talking about what they did that day. Mm. Even in LARPA today they'll say that Tom and his wife Eliza, they were the king and queen of LARPA, that, that they were it. Do you remember what the conversation was like after you found that photo? That was incredible. That whole day was incredible. Yeah, you told your dad. He's about- amazed. He doesn't understand how I find this stuff yeah. because the internet's just really email, right? Yeah. Um, and that's just on his computer. Yeah, you can't get email <laughs> on any other. His email and why is my email on your computer? <laughs> it's been really difficult to explain how it's like. It's on everybody's computer. Why is that? Like, <laughs> it's been a bit hard to explain that. But he's blown away. He's just yeah. always blown away. Always speechless. It's undoing some of the assimilationist isolation, mm. isn't it? Mm. That salt and pepper mm. policy. It's joining all of those bits back together. It is. Yeah. And it's the best part about it, I think, and this is what I learned through UTS and doing my PhD with them and through the Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges, is learning the importance of people within communities doing the research and just being dogged in that whole, like, ah. I'm not giving up till I find this piece of paper or a photo or something that proves this because I've had that all my life. Like, prove it, prove it, Mm. prove it, prove it. And I was like, okay, I'll bloody prove it. All right. So 95,000 words later, (laughs) I think I've proved it (laughs) (laughs) and found so much more. But the best bits have been taking them home to Dad and sitting in the backyard and playing music for him or showing him photos or, oh, you know, he's like, I've never seen that one, I've never seen this one. It's just, it's been phenomenal. That's been the best bit. It's not going to the people who are like, you don't belong here. Yeah. It's actually the circle coming around again and being able to take everything back to my family and showing them and sharing it with them has been the best bits, Mm, without a doubt. Through my family, there has been a whole bunch of stories passed down. Our ancestral stories, they're based around this idea of five Dorawal truths. There's the truth as it actually exists, but then there's my version of the truth, your version of the truth, and they're both still truths because they are to us, and then what comes before and what will come after. And so you can understand then how two completely opposing things can sit side by side and still exist that because I'm saying one thing doesn't mean you're wrong saying your thing. It's sort of warning you against assumptions and prejudice and coming in thinking you know all the bits and pieces where you don't. And you can't ever know everything. So you have to surrender to the fact that you may be wrong and that your truth may not be a complete truth. My dad wasn't lying. (laughs) I wasn't pulling my leg for once. Yesterday he said something and I just sat there in front of him and went, I have never heard that before in my life. The stories are still unfolding, you know. It's never ending. It's never over. Never. This episode of Think Sustainability was made by me, Lawrence Bull. Thanks to Darawell Saltwater Knowledge Keeper Shannon Foster for coming onto the program. Our series is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. We pay our respects to the many traditional custodians of this land. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. If you'd like to hear more episodes, open up any podcast app and search for Think Sustainability. Sustainability.